Hello, and thank you for listening to Living Wealthy Radio, heard around the web on livingwealthyradio.com, iTunes, and Blog Talk Radio. I am Teresa Kuhn, helping you live wealthier. Resources are available for you at livingwealthyradio.com. Do you struggle to get ahead, but it seems like you never can? Or do you sometimes wonder why the cost of living is so high and prices just keep climbing? Are you a senior who really can't afford to retire because you can't live off your fixed income savings? Or are you a millennial who can't really afford to buy a home? Is middle class now starting to feel the same as lower class? Well, whatever your income It seems like you're having to work harder and harder just to stay in the same place. What exactly is going on? Who is to blame? And what can we do about it? Our guest today, Adam Taggart, is an expert on the financial and business sectors. He is president and co-founder of Peak Prosperity and an experienced Silicon Valley executive who's here to share with us how Wall Street and the banking industry are robbing the American people and just what our options are. So welcome to Living Wealthy Radio, Adam. Thank you, Teresa. It's a pleasure to be here. Tell us a little bit about your journey from a Silicon Valley insider to your current role as a wealth protection strategist. Sure. And uh, I might even start a little bit sooner than my days on uh, on Silicon Valley, just to give you the full context here. Um, so I, uh, I'm from a family of doctors and had always expected uh, that I would become one myself. And uh, as I was graduating from college back in the early 90s, uh, it was when the uh, the Clintons were taking on uh, reforming the healthcare industry then. And for better or worse, I listened to the doctors in my life who were afraid of where that industry was headed and uh, who encouraged me to, to take a few years before I, I, I got into medicine and to do something else to see how things would shake out. So I found myself at the end of my college career with having to figure out uh, uh, a different plan because, of course, the plan had always been to go to medical school. And uh, I ended up getting recruited out of college by one of the investment banking analyst programs on Wall Street. And so I, I spent my very early career uh, as a junior investment banking analyst, and I uh, felt like I, that gave me a, a, a front row seat to all that is broken in the modern uh, financial system. Uh, I think I would sum it up by saying, uh, you know, really, I learned firsthand that, uh, that the banks do not serve, uh, exist to serve the interests of their clients, as they publicly state. They really exist to serve their own interests. And uh, I didn't like what I saw there. I certainly didn't like the culture on Wall Street. And so uh, I ejected from there and uh, ended up going to Stanford to get my MBA with the hopes that I'd find uh, somewhere in business uh, that uh, you know would resonate more with my values and, and would make more of the type of difference in the world that I wanted to make. And while I was there at Stanford, the, uh, the Internet revolution happened. It was a very exciting time, and it was hard not to get wrapped up in that. And for a while, it actually really was changing the world. Um, but as that industry began to mature, um, it became less about that and more about, you know, hitting the, the, the numbers for the quarter that Wall Street was expecting you to hit. And by that time, I had um, been hired by Yahoo. And uh, long story short, um, by the end of my time working at Yahoo, I had uh, been reading 
leading up to 2008, I'd been reading a lot of the voices on the internet that were warning about a housing bubble, warning about a larger economic bubble, and their logic made a lot of good sense to me. And increasingly, trying to get a few more people to use Yahoo Mail or play Yahoo Fantasy Sports on their mobile phone just didn't seem to make a, a big enough difference in the world, given the type of future that I thought was coming, given what these folks were predicting. And, uh, and up until 2008, it was, it was still a lot of theory, but that theory became very quickly validated as we entered the great financial crisis of 2008. And once that happened, um, it really um, uh, solidified a lot of um, things that I had been wrestling with internally about where I thought the world was headed and, and, and the role I wanted to play in it. And uh, I decided that uh, just continuing to do what I was doing in the big corporate rat race um, was not meaningful to me personally, and it was not making a true difference in the world. And what I wanted to do was to try to help build awareness amongst the general public of these big trends that are at hand uh, in the economy, and actually not just the economy itself. Uh, there, there are equally large trends happening in, in our energy systems and in the environment that we really need to, to know about in terms of our future quality of life. And uh, I wanted to play an active role in helping people become aware of those trends and then making prudent decisions in their lives to take informed action based upon that information. And so I ended up partnering up with Chris Martinson, who was one of those people I had been reading leading up to the 2008 crisis, who was uh, raving a very bright warning flag, warning folks about what was gonna happen. Uh, Chris specifically authored the video series, The Crash Course, which some of your listeners might be familiar with, which I think uh, even today is still the best articulation of really what's going on at the macro sense. And so Chris and I together co-founded Peak Prosperity uh, to take that message more effectively to more people and, uh, and, and also put in a lot of solution uh, content and guidance so that people can actually take uh, specific action in their life based on all that. So that's kind of my whole life arc and why I've ended up where I am and doing what I'm doing. So do you ever feel like people look at you and think you're wearing a tinfoil hat? Uh, absolutely. Um, the one thing I'll say is uh, fewer and fewer people are looking at me and Chris and those in our field like that um, these days. Uh, I'm not saying that a lot of people still don't, but um, they certainly did when we were, you know, warning about this information 10 years ago when it still felt, you know, fairly foreign to people. But uh, I think more and more people have seen uh, evidence manifest in their own lives, whether it was losing their job after 2008 or seeing their home price uh, take a big hit uh, in the first few years after the crisis started, um, or whether it's um, uh, seeing the sluggishness of the U.S. economy that despite all of the money printing that's gone on by the central banks, um, you know, we're still chugging along at, at, at subpar uh, GDP rates. Um, so there's a lot of manifestations here that more and more people are beginning to know uh, in their guts and, and sometimes even in their minds that, you know, something isn't really quite right here, that things aren't, aren't really going as well as the mainstream media is purporting to us. Um, and more and more of what used to be part of our core message that was regarded as really fringe is making its way into the mainstream narrative. Um, and not completely yet, but um, what's interesting is uh, where I think we were very firmly kind of placed in the doomsday prepper tinfoil hat wearing camp 
10 years ago, um, we're much more now seen as a voice that at least, you know, uh, deserves, you know, some consideration in, in the national narrative, which I think is a big, a uh, big positive change. Absolutely. And I'm one of those who was perceived as wearing the tinfoil hat. Actually, I, I discovered that what I had been taught in finance school and law school about how the system works, banking works, money works, was a big fat lie. Thanks mm -hmm. to G. Edward Griffin. Um, sure. when I first was introduced to him back then. And over the years, it's become more at least I meet more and more people that may not understand the depth of what we as researchers and as students of this genre, so to speak, have discovered, but they get there's a lot wrong and there's a lot of lies and misinformation out there. That much they get. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, if you're a, if you're a member of the middle class, you know, it, it's become abundantly clear over the past 10, 15 years uh, that, uh, you know, in many ways, there's almost an all-out war on the middle class, that it's a, it's becoming an endangered species, that we're, we're really bifurcating into an economy of haves and have-nots. And if you're a millennial who's graduating, I mean, this is a, this is a, this isn't even really, I think, a, a gray area for them. You know, they, they look at the world that they're being asked to step into, um, where, uh, hey, you know, uh, we're going to charge you an arm and a leg for college. Uh, we're going to make you take on excessive debts that, by the way, aren't dischargeable in personal bankruptcy. And uh, you're going to step into a, an economy that, um, you know, is, is chugging along at subpar growth rates. Uh, by the way, the, uh, the hiring market isn't so great because the seniors can't afford to retire. We're outsourcing a lot of jobs, and increasingly we're automating them with robotics and AI. Uh, so, you know, forget about having job security. Um, or forget about having uh, you know, competitive wages in the marketplace. And uh, by the way, you know, while we're asking you to do all that, um, housing prices have escalated to the point where there's absolutely no way you're going to be able to afford to buy one. Um, and all the time, we're going to ask you to be picking up the tab for paying for the retirements of the baby boomers, many of whom didn't plan for retirement, um, and, uh, and paying for the tab for our crumbling national infrastructure that we haven't invested in. So uh, congratulations. Here you go, kid. <laughs> So it's uh, it's a story that sadly is finally becoming more and more obvious to more and more uh, you know, parts of society. And it's it's really quite sad because I think the millennials are going to be the first generation from a um, from is going to be the first generation that will not have a higher standard of living than their parents. I, I think that might be, and if not millennials, maybe Generation X, right? That their their future is not as bright as their parents. Well, that's very true, and I would say that Generation X probably is going to uh, probably is actually um, uh, going to be the the winner of that mantle of of, of the first generation to live uh, with less prosperity than their parents. I think the millennials, that's an absolute certainty. Um, and, and part of that is, is uh, you know, the, the, the boomers were alive at a magical time uh, for human beings, um, especially if you lived in America, right? Uh, I mean, America had an unbelievable amount of prosperity, uh, you know, a lot of which was due to the rich natural resources of America and uh, uh, technology innovations, but, but certainly also because most of the other econ world economies were 
uh, in disrepair after World War II. Um, also, through the lens we look at at peak prosperity, you know, there was a, a, a long multi-decadal stretch of essentially, you know, limitless cheap uh, energy in the form of, of, of cheap oil. Um, the whole petro uh, dollar regime was uh, was you know came into full force during their generation um, and and much through their uh, their lifetime. Uh, the world was producing producing more and more energy for for cheaper and cheaper rates, um, and so they had that massive tailwind at their back. We're living in an era now where we're bumping up against uh, limits uh, limits to growth, uh, planetary limits for the resources in certain cases, uh, and we're certainly you know, entering an era where we are. Uh, it's getting harder and harder to kick the can for a lot of the um, excesses of the past, and so. Uh, you know, I think at, at, at a base level, uh, both economically and with a growing amount of natural resources, uh, we're beginning to face the, uh, the time where we've been living above our means for too many generations. And uh, at some point, you can't do that forever. And uh, mathematically, uh, to, get, to get back to a sustainable level, if you've been living above your means, you actually need a period of living below them for a while until things can stabilize. Uh, and of course, nobody wants to do that. No politician obviously wants to preside over that. And so we've just been in this can kicking mode for the past couple of decades. And the big question here is, is you know, when do we get to the point where that can't can really can't be kicked anymore? And uh, and you know, when those repercussions start manifesting, uh, how fast will that be? And at what extent will they manifest? Um, that's a lot about what we do at Peak Prosperity is trying to look at the the most recent data and and um, project out probabilities. Um, but, but at a big level, with certainty, we can say uh, a lot of these things uh, are not going to be able to continue the way that they have for uh, much of the past couple of, of, of decades. And so, you know, one of our little quirky catchphrases is the next 20 years is going to be completely unlike the past 20 years. And the reason for that is, is because it simply can't. Um, we have way too many um, excesses that have to be cleared from the system in one way, shape, or form. And uh, while our, our leaders have been doing their absolute best to push those consequences off into the future, we're getting to the point where we're entering the future where those consequences can't be pushed anymore. So keeping it high level for one more moment, do you sure. think that what's occurred, you know, from the baby boomers, um, from the, the most prosperous era probably in the history of the world, to where we are today was all part of a deliberate plan? I think the honest answer is, is I don't know. Um, there are people out there who uh, talk about the, the, the globalist agenda. Um, and uh, I can certainly say that there are probably components of that that are quite true. Um, I look at it more, I think, and in, in, sadly, I think it, it is really just a study in human nature and, um, you know, the way in which we're programmed from our early evolutionary times is, you know, we were programmed to uh, uh, to consume when there was stuff to consume because, uh, you know, you, you might catch a mastodon today and might not catch another one for another couple of weeks. Um, so as a society, we're, I think we're biologically wired to, uh, to gorge ourselves. And we had many, many things to gorge ourselves on. And um, again, sort of how the human brain is wired, we're really good at reacting to immediate Visible risks were, were quite bad about um, planning for avoiding long-term uh, risks that aren't immediately visible. And so I think in, in this case, it's just our nature somewhat working against us where 
we always made sort of the the selfish, short-sighted decision, and um, that was really fun. And that that you know got people elected and kept them in power, and uh, and it felt fun at the time uh, to the the people who were enjoying that pulling of prosperity from the future into the present. Um, but, uh, you know, like I said earlier, those, those decisions have consequences and we're finally getting to the point where we can't just keep partying. It's where we have to actually start being a little bit responsible and, and, uh, that's not popular and it's uh, not something politicians like doing, but, uh, I think increasingly we're going to be forced to make the responsible decisions that we should have made decades ago. Um, it's just the consequences of those decisions are a lot higher now. What about today, looking at today moving forward, uh, do you feel that there is a concerted plan, strategy to minimize the middle class or, or, you know, widen the gap between the lower income and the very, very wealthy with policies and um, politics around targeting the middle class and making them uh, less affluent so that the wealthy or those in power have more power and more opportunity? Uh, I do. I do. Um, I, I don't, uh, I don't know. Uh, and I'm just being transparent about it. I don't have enough data to, to say that it's, it's all part of some grand plan for, you know, enslaving, uh, you know, the 99%. Um, but I can tell you that the outcome is going to be the same. And, uh, you know, what I mean by that is, you know, I keep saying that we've, we've uh, pulled prosperity from the future into the present and, uh, and you know, uh, going forward, we're going to have less prosperity and therefore we're going to have to make tougher and tougher decisions. Um, we're getting to the point where those that are at the, um, at the top end of the system, um, they have been uh, – getting the lion's share of the prosperity. And of course, they are reinvesting that prosperity into increasing their share of the pie, right? So they're getting the, the, the rules written more in their favor. Uh, you know, they're, they're uh, uh, funding politicians to, to get into office who will then pass legislation that'll be favorable to the interests of these, these elites. Um, and again, I, I think that's largely all just sort of general human nature. Um, but what's happening now is we're getting to the point where the overall pie itself can no longer grow from these limits. And those at the top are not going to willingly uh, allow their slices to shrink. Um, as a matter of fact, if the pie is growing and the elites still want to get greater prosperity, they're going to actually do everything they can to increase their slice. Um, but of course, it's, it's a slice of a pie that's no longer growing, may actually be shrinking. And so the net impact of that is that you're taking from everybody else. Um, and so I think that uh, that's the phase that we are entering into now where the elites are saying, hey, uh, I, it's getting harder and harder to continue uh, gaining the riches that I've been getting at the same rate I've been getting them. But I'm going to keep reinvesting all my energies to make that continue for as long as possible. And uh, since they've got so many advantages, they're going to win out over the smaller classes and they're going to be stealing and stealing from them. And so it's going to effectively create what you talked about there, which is uh, an increasingly bifurcated system where it's a very, very small number of people and institutions that are hoovering up the vast, vast majority of, of assets and resources at the expense of everybody else. And so, you know, we'll see the middle class dwindle and then eventually evaporate. And, you know, for me as a student of all this, the big question is, is at what point does the rest of the world, the, the remaining 99% or 99.9% .9 
uh, rise up and say, this is unfair. You know, let's uh, let's change the game here. And I got to tell you, I, I, I remain surprised at times that it hasn't happened already. Um, I'm trying to remember the exact numbers here, and I'm probably not going to not going to get them well, but I, I think it was in 2015, Oxfam did a study of global wealth inequality, and 61 people owned as much of the world's wealth as the uh, as the bottom 50 percent. Um, mm. And and then in 2016, they reran the same survey, and and it was now eight people who owned as much as the bottom 50% of the world, which shows you just how fast this wealth is concentrating into smaller and smaller hands. So, you know, when you get to a point where eight people own as much as, as half the planet, um, you really got to ask yourself, you know, <laughs> when are people going to say enough is enough, right? When are we going to say that's, that's just grossly unfair? Um, clearly, we're not at that level yet, but, but at some point we will get there. It's happened many, many times throughout history. Um, so just being really specific, I mean, there, there, are, there are absolutely very conscious decisions being made right now to sacrifice the middle and lower classes for the benefit of the upper classes. And we can talk about several of them if you like, but I think a really clear one is, is the Federal Reserve's interest rate policy. Um, the Federal Reserve you know, will, will titularly say that it has brought interest rates down and pushed liquidity in the markets to stave off a uh, – you know, a, a, a prolonged recession. Um, but there's a very good argument on the other side of that, which is that, hey, by, by trying to actually um, prevent business cycles from happening naturally, the Fed is creating, you know, worse downturns when downturns inevitably happen. And, uh, and it's meddling is actually making things worse. But, uh, but for sure, as the Fed has been trying to, um, you know, clean up its mess from, from uh, helping create the 2008 credit crisis, um, I, it has a been flooding the world with liquidity, which is you know to value the purchasing power of our individual dollars. And so, if you have fewer dollars, you feel that that loss of purchasing power more acutely. Um, but it's been keeping rates at at historically low and and I just think quite ridiculous levels for much too long. And it has destroyed the uh, the incentive uh, for for saving. There's really no no reason for uh, a prudent person to save anymore when you're you're getting. You know, I just checked at my my local Wells Fargo savings bank, um, my savings account there. It's getting 0.06% return on savings, which is effectively zero. So I'm putting my money in a bank that's charging me fees, both overt and hidden, uh, giving me withdrawal limitations on that account, um, and is obviously, you know, has the risk out there. Someday if we enter another crisis and, and there's a bank bail-in, I could lose some of that money or all of it. Uh, and for that... Uh, you know, for that benefit, I'm getting a 0.06% return, which means if I put $100,000 in that account for a year, I get $60 back. Uh, certainly not worth it, uh, given given those risks. Uh, and uh, and and you know what that does for the average person is it it just kills them. I mean, the the, the average uh, pensioner, you know, living on a fixed income, uh, they're just getting no return on that, right? In the old days, you know, you could live off of a six seven percent. Uh, return, which is what savings accounts, you know, used to offer back in the 80s. Um, nowadays, you can't earn anything off of, off of a 0.06% return. And of course, that's the nominal return. So when you add inflation into the mix, uh, let's take the government's official inflation stats for the last 12 months. It's 2.2%. 
So subtract that from 0.06, you get a negative 2.14% real return on your savings. So you're actually just lo you're losing purchasing power by keeping your money there in the bank. And of course, we all know that the official uh, inflation rate is grossly understated. So the picture is even more dire than that. Um, so that's a very conscious uh, decision that the Fed has made to basically say, look, we're going to keep the banks fat and happy uh, at the expense of the general public who, you know, depends on savings for building capital to do the things that they want to do in their lives, like buy homes and save for the future. And we're going to throw grandma under the bus. Uh, and we're basically going to sacrifice all the seniors who, who live on a fixed income um, in the interest of preserving this, you know, this, this elite financial system for the, the too big to fail banks and uh, the people who get first access to all that money printed by the bank, which is not the little folks like you or I. Boy, you've said so much. There's so many directions I can, I can uh, take this conversation. <laughs> um, and I'll go to human behavior for one, right? Um, it, it, it's uncanny how you look at the psychology or human behavior when it comes to money. And I think one of the reasons why most people aren't demanding a change is because they're totally distracted and they have amnesia. And the Federal Reserve policies encourage people to invest because they know they can't make any money on their bank accounts or in their savings accounts. And Wall Street is at an all-time high. Mm -hmm. And so they've forgotten what it felt like when Wall Street was down, right, and they lost money. They've forgotten what it means to have the pain of looking at their portfolios and uh, it's 30 40 50% of the value they thought it should be. Um, they forget the real estate crisis. They just know that today Wall Street's up, their portfolios look like they're up, and so what if they can't get, you know, a nice return uh, in their bank, right? Um, and they're also very distracted by social media and by sports and by, you know, the drama with the politics. It's all a big distraction. Well, it goes back to the old bread and circuses from Roman times, right? Exactly. You know, it's, it's keep, keep your populace distracted and they hopefully won't, you know, pay attention to what you're you're doing in the background to, to transfer the wealth to, you know, yourself and your cronies, which is exactly what's going on here. Yeah. And it's interesting. And so, so there there are there are um, uh, you're exactly right, which is what the Fed is doing here uh, is called pushing people out along the risk curve. Right? It's trying to get them out of safer assets. And, and trying to force the money into where the Fed wants it to go, which is into the assets that the wealthy own, right, which are, you know, stocks and real estate and things like that. Um, and, uh, you know, that's all, that's all great for everybody who's participating as long as the game continues. And, you know, what's, what's interesting and sad is, is we don't have the participation on the retail side um, with the average investor at this point that we did back leading up to the 2008 crisis. So, um, the people who are still invested in the market, you know, whether it's through their 401ks or, uh, you know, whatever, uh, whatever other savings they may have, um, you know, they're, they're now, you know, happy enough with several years of the market hitting record high year after year, uh, similar with housing. Um, but there's a lot of people that have been lost from the middle class and from, from that average investor pool since 2008. So there's, you know, for, 
for every person who's uh, you know still got a portfolio and, and still owns their house, um, there's at least another person there who got forced into becoming a renter um, or you know uh, never put their money back into the market because they either lost so much or they're now just very understandably distrustful of the markets. And so. Um, you know, those people are really seeing a world of hurt right now because they've gotten, you know, no return from from their investment portfolio side of things. And rents have skyrocketed right along with housing prices. And so, you know, those people are really getting it from both ends where they're not getting any savings return. Um, they're not getting wage growth return. So on the income side, they're really stagnating. Um, and then uh, on the cost side, uh, they're seeing their costs increase dramatically, you know, multiples more than what the official government is claiming is, is the, uh, the in inflation rate and the, the, the cost and, and the general increase in cost of living. You know, as I said earlier, the, by the government's calculations, it's somewhere around 2%. You know, if you're somebody who has to pay health care, has to pay rent, has to buy, buy food at the grocery store, you realize that that number is probably much more like 6 or 7% annually. Um, and that's if you're lucky, particularly around health care these days. So, um, uh, it is. It, it's really a combination of um, you know push people uh, you know, push people's money where you want it to be, uh, and then distract them with um, you know meaningless controversies or meaningless entertainments, um, so that uh, you know they remain uh, uh, distracted enough that they're not uh, you know waking up to this stuff. And, and what's interesting is is you know there's. There's there's more going on here that we've just uh, talked about, and, and certainly one thing that's going on right now is um, something called financial repression, which which sounds like a, a a general term, but it's actually a very specific term. Um, it's a playbook that governments have used again and again throughout history to deal with excessive debts that they've racked up over time, which is exactly where we are right now. And um, what uh, what financial repression involves is is uh, manipulating interest rates um, and uh, bringing them down to artificially low areas, and then providing um, or putting in uh, preventative measures for capital to escape. So, in other words, um, making it hard for people to move their money out of the country. Well, you know, if anybody has uh, foreign investments and have had to um, comply with FATCA. Uh, you've got a sense that the government is making it harder and harder to keep uh, keep money outside of um, outside of the U.S. borders. Um, if you are investing in things like precious metals, uh, one, they have higher uh, taxes placed on their gains, and secondly, anybody that follows the precious metals markets, um, it's very very hard not to conclude that those markets are heavily manipulated and manipulated to the downside uh, to control the price of gold and silver and prevent. Um, uh, people from uh, finding uh, safety there. We talked earlier about how just trying not to play the game and putting your money into a bank savings account is, is nowadays a losing proposition. Uh, so the government is ring-fencing your money, money, and it's pushing it into where it, it needs it to go and wants it to go. Uh, at the same time, by keeping interest rates that low, what the government essentially is doing is allowing itself to keep issuing more and more debt to fund what it's doing, to deficit fund what it's doing, which essentially is just pulling in prosperity from the future and consuming it today. Um, and what that process does is it ends up, at the end of the day, uh, uh, you know, devaluing the currency that, that is underlying the debt. Um, it, it, it does that at the same time while making those debt interest payments lower for the government 
uh, to have to make. And so essentially what all this does is it transfers the cost of the debt from the government to the populace's savings. And that's what's going on right now. And the challenge is, is it's, it's so just enough removed uh, in terms of it's not, a, it's not a direct theft. It's an indirect way to siphon off that purchasing power from the, uh, uh, from the average uh, uh, saver that it's not noticeable uh, to the general public. Uh, it's just confusing enough. It's just hidden enough that it's not something they notice uh, until, of course, it's, it's way too late. Um, and so uh, that's exactly what's going on here right now. It's, uh, it's a very nefarious process where it's kind of that sort of frog in the boiling pot process where um, for the average person, it's just one little new regulation here or one little new inconvenience here. You know, interest rates go down a little bit. They go down a little bit more. Um, and uh, you don't quite notice that it's happening in, in real time. You just, over the years, begin to feel this sense of it's just getting harder and harder and harder to get by. And I wonder why. Well, as we're talking about, it's no, it's no accident of fate. It is something that is being very deliberately conducted, and it's being conducted by our leaders expressly for the reason of allowing them to keep the current game going on for at least another year, two years longer. Uh, and that game is enriching themselves by taking your wealth and transferring it to them in a way that's just complex enough that hopefully you won't catch on to it. So where do you think Americans should position whatever wealth they've got today? Yep. If it's not Great in the banks question. and it's not in Wall Street, <laughs> <clears throat> what other options are there? Well, um, so uh, I, I'm going to give the short story, which is a little commercial for a book that my partner, Chris Martinson, and I wrote uh, a little over a year ago called Prosper, um, which addresses this exact question head on. Um, and, uh, and just to give you the tagline of the book, it's called How to Prepare for the Future and Create a World Worth Inheriting. And it's a way in which we give a direct roadmap to people on very actionable steps they can take around these issues um, and to do so with positivity, because a lot of people get wrapped up in a lot of fear around this, um, uh, fear that, uh, you know, A, they're going to be a victim, but, but, but also fear, too, that, that, you know, really bad things could happen societally going forward uh, in case we have you know, massive crashes, massive depressions, whatnot. And I'm not saying that there isn't, isn't risk of certain of those things happening, but um, uh, it's, uh, uh, there is a way that my partner and I very much believe that we can take control in large parts of our own destinies here and, and, and look to the future with a sense of, uh, of hope and excitement versus a, a sense of dread, which is where we see a lot of people getting stuck. Um, but uh, to get to your question specifically, so um, yes, uh, first is obviously, you know, arm yourself with knowledge about what's going on uh, at the macro level so you can sort of understand the rules of the game that you're being forced to play here. Um, uh, on, the, on the money side of things, and I'm just going to make a quick little note that a really important part of our view is that you really need to expand your definition of an investment beyond just money and, you know, how many dollars you have in your bank account. Um, but I'll, I'll get to that in just a moment. Um, when it comes to wealth, uh, our wealth is being siphoned away. It's being manipulated. It's being literally inflated away. Um, and so our big advice is um, position your wealth uh, in a way where it's, it's much harder uh, for those in power to, to do that. And um, by that, we mean try to in, in, invest in assets 
that are not easily inflatable away. Um, and or what do I mean by that? Well, 100 years ago, if you walked into a town and asked somebody, hey, who's the richest guy in town here? That answer would have been pretty easy. Um, it, they would have pointed, you know, to some direction and said, oh, it's that guy over there. And the answer why would have been because that guy has the most land. Uh, back then, productive land was was the clear sign of, of, of wealth. And um, at Peak Prosperity, we def- we define three wealth, wealth into three classifications. There's primary wealth, which is the, the natural product uh, produced by nature. So this is the, the veins of ore that are in the ground. These are fertile fields. These are uh, running streams of, of, of potable water. Um, these are strands of timber. That's primary wealth. Um, then there's secondary wealth, which is what is the thing you make from primary wealth? Well, you know, so with with timber, that becomes a lumber that then becomes, you know, buildings and housings and things like that. Um, with ore, that becomes steel, right? Um, it, you, we create productive factories out of those materials. Uh, with with uh, land, it becomes the food that makes its way to our grocery stores and our kitchen tables and whatnot. Um, so um, our, uh, uh, you know, we look at secondary wealth uh, still as, as a form of tangible wealth. Then you look at tertiary wealth, which is really what most of us now think of when we think of wealth. Um, this is the financialized version of wealth, which really came into to play over the past you know, 50, 60, 70 years. And, and these are paper claims, either on secondary wealth or primary wealth. And simply put, what's happened here is we now live in an era of over-financialization where there are way more paper claims on the underlying assets than there are mm-hmm. assets themselves. So where mm-hmm. I'm going with all this is we recommend that people try to shift their wealth from the paper side of things back to the tangible side of things um, and look for ways to you know, own, have direct ownership of, of primary wealth or secondary wealth. And so this might be you know, investing locally into uh, local businesses that you, you know, know in your area, you're a direct investor, you actually can see how that capital is being put to use. Those are creating income streams for you. Um, real estate investing is actually a form of this that's relatively available to a, a, a large swath of the swath of the investing population. Um, speaking with uh, speaking of primary wealth, um, probably the easiest way to do that is to own some gold and silver bullion. Right? That's a, a very easy way to get uh, direct ownership of that commodity. Uh, but certainly, there are ways to uh, to invest in farmland. Uh, invest in timberland, um, purchase water rights, things like that. So there's a there's a, 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 a there's a whole host of different uh, asset classes there to invest in. It's just not as known to the average investor, and it's a little bit more complicated. You know, it's not as easy as going to E Trade and buying a share of uh, of uh, you know Tesla stock with the click of a mouse. Um, it does take a little bit more work and a little bit more due diligence, but it is eminently doable. And it's a way to position your wealth into capital, into financial capital that uh, that can't just be, uh, you know, double, tripled in size over the next couple of years by a central banking cartel that uh, just wants to print up additional trillions, um, which is what they've been doing for the past several years. How much time do you think we have before, you know, the walls come crumbling down? Crumbling down. Yeah, that's a great question. It's the one that everybody wants to know the answer to. And, and I will tell you, anybody who gives you an answer uh, that sounds like it's got a level of certainty behind it is fooling 
both you and themselves. Um, but from from our perspective, you know, Chris is a is a scientist, and and I'm an empiricist. We're very data driven guys, and, and we talk a lot about um, you know, probabilities. Um, uh, you know, I, I think the probability of another sort of 2008 style uh, market major market correction um, is. Uh, unacceptably high at this point. And uh, in terms of a time frame, I personally feel very comfortable putting it within the next five years. Um, if I had to put uh, you know a finer beat on that in terms of do I think it'll be more at the beginning of the next five years, the end of the next five years, I, I think within the next two years um, is where I'm personally positioning my portfolio uh, with that in mind. Um, is it something that could happen tomorrow? Absolutely. So, um, you know, our general viewpoints, um, which I try to practice on a regular basis, is it's much, much better to be positioned a year early than to try to position yourself a day late. Mm. Uh, so, you know, I think right now, if you're an investor, uh, we've long passed the time, I think, for positioning yourself defensively. And that can be, you know, selling your paper positions and getting out of the market and getting into the, the more types of tangible assets that I was talking about. Um, or it could be, you know, putting some of your portfolio into a uh, a hedge position where you're actually actively, you know, uh, set to profit uh, in case of a market downturn. Um, I think if you haven't taken either of those steps, uh, it is it is long overdue for you to sit down with a professional financial advisor and have that discussion about you know, uh, how much of that you should consider doing now. Um, you know, I'm not trying to scare folks, and I'm not I'm not saying you know don't have any long positions in this market. Although, being perfectly honest with your listeners, I don't have any myself. Um, but I think that you need to be uh, prepared today for a minimum you know 20 percent market correction. Um, you don't necessarily have to, uh, uh, you know, bet on the downturn today in terms of taking short, you know, the short side of that trade. But you need to have answered the question for yourself: If the market were to start correcting 20% tomorrow, am I positioned enough today where I'm, I'm, uh, I've, I've minimized my downside, or I've at least, um, uh, I've at least positioned myself that my losses will be acceptable to me given given my risk profile. Um, Given the people that we talk about on a daily basis here at Peak Prosperity, I think, you know, I, I feel pretty safe saying 99% of America who, who is still invested in this market has not had that conversation with themselves yet. Well, it's so interesting the way you, you position that. Um, again, so many different ways I can go. Um, I can take the conversation, but I, I interview some of the most brilliant minds in economics and finance and uh, everyone has a really good prediction or idea as to what's going to happen and when, with a disclaimer, right? And they've got great right. arguments as to why. And then we see what's happened in the last seven years with Wall Street, and it makes absolutely no sense, right? Um, but we know eventually things have to blow up. And regarding taking a short position in the market, I am not Wall Street licensed on purpose. That's not the, the type of strategies I work with. But if you, if anyone has seen the movie The Big Short, there's the, uh, there's the guy in, who, who shorts the market and he just does it a little early. He, he sees the indicators. He knows what's going to happen. He just was a little bit premature, right? And so, Shorting the market 
can also be a dangerous thing because if you had shorted the market three years ago with very good reason, knowing that it's going to blow up at some point in time, uh, you'd be hurting right now or out, yeah, out of your position because you can't afford to keep it. Absolutely. You know, there's the old adage that the market can remain irrational longer than you can remain solvent, um, which I think every investor, right. uh, you know, long or short, needs to, to always have at the forefront of their mind. No, very, very true. And, uh, I, you know, since we're, we're putting the disclaimers out here, um, I, I'm not encouraging people to rush out and, and get short positions. And if you do, uh, again, definitely do that under the guidance of a, uh, a right. seasoned and experienced financial professional. Um, and for some people, I think, you know, having a little bit of that in, in having, having a little short position in your portfolio, um, makes sense. Uh, one is a little bit, you know, for, for those that can afford to speculate with that percentage of their portfolio, sure that makes sense if you want to go there. Um, I think it's just a, a sensible form of insurance if you are long in that portfolio, like most people who are, you know, have most of their funds, their retirement funds in a 401k or whatnot, where uh, they're usually generally limited to, you know, one of five or six funds uh, that the retirement plan offers. Um, so if you have a, a small short position in, a, in another you know, brokerage account or something that you have, uh, it's just providing some, some general diversification. But, um, but yes, you know, I think um, yeah, the key word that I've been using here, uh, which I hope I've used a couple of times, is defense. So this is a real time for defense. Um, and so you know, while cash in the bank is not, not uh, offering you much at all, and I started our whole conversation off with that, there are times where no return is better than a negative return. And um, uh, I will admit, I'm, I'm actually pretty heavily cash right now and, and also heavy precious metals. Um, and that's just because I feel like we are at the point here where having dry powder um, is, is the safe place to be, both, both in terms of safe from you know, if the market corrects uh, in the manner that I think it will. Um, and if it does, you know, then if you've got that capital that's been set aside and, and placed in reserve, um, you know, if the correction is as large as, as I think it could be, or certainly if it's as large as I think it should be, you know, there are going to be some fantastic um, investing opportunities here once the dust settles. Um, and of course, you can only participate in those if you've you've kept your uh, your capital safe. So, mm -hmm. um, I certainly, you know, the, the thing I do feel really comfortable recommending to people is is this is a time to play it safe. It is a time to trade off upside potential for limiting your downside exposure. Mm, absolutely. So it's been a great conversation. I so appreciate your perspective and your history and your background, right, and how you've taken uh, this field, this perspective on the financial systems and investing and what's coming. Um, it, it's, a, it's a very credible, grounded perspective that I so appreciate. I think your message is a wake-up call uh, about our country's financial system. The deck is certainly stacked against us, right? Um, and our standard of living is certainly declining. The banks aren't playing fair. It's up to us to take responsibility for our future, educate ourselves. Um, you've got a, a great course. You've got some great resources to do that. And uh, your website is peakprosperity.com. Uh, any parting words or any, anything else you'd like to share before we sign off today? 
Sure. Well, first, just to thank you for inviting me on. This has been a great discussion, and I, I really appreciate the opportunity to chat with you. It's fun. And uh, I agree with you. I think that the parting thing that people should take from this is um, this is a time for action. Uh, we are not being told the true state of the world, as you said earlier. And so um, and a really important part of that action is getting educated. And so uh, whether it's folks listening to your podcasts or coming to Peak Prosperity and reading a little bit or, or going to the other many sites on the Internet that are in our space that are trying to surface this information, uh, I think that's a huge benefit to yourself is to get out there and read that information, um, become self-educated, and then use that information to take actual prudent steps now in your life for the types of risks that we see coming. Um, information by itself is useless if it's not put into application. And, uh, and, and not educating yourself, ignoring this information is a decision in itself. And, uh, you know, given, Teresa, I think your perspective and mine, um, you know, folks that don't plan for uh, what we believe might be coming, uh, if they're caught by it unprepared, it's, it's not going to be a nice place to be. So uh, my strong uh, encouragement to folks here is to get out there, educate yourself, and then ask, okay, what smart action should I take based upon what I've learned? You've been listening to Living Wealthy Radio, heard around the web on livingwealthyradio.com, iTunes, and Blog Talk Radio. Download or subscribe to our podcast to hear a new show every week. I am Teresa Kuhn, and I hope you'll join me again next week as I show you ways to live wealthier. Resources are available for you on our website at livingwealthyradio.com. 